0: You're listening to the Surf Simply podcast bringing you news and opinion about surf culture, characters, coaching and competition from the team at the Surf Simply Coaching Resort. Find us on facebook.com/surfing or at surfsimply.com. Hello ladies and gentlemen and welcome to episode 29 of the Surf Simply podcast. We're recording on Tuesday the 5th of April 2016. My name is Harry Knight and with me today is Rue Hill. Hello everyone. And Asher King. Hello podcast land. We're, uh, we're recording in a slightly weird experimental way. Rue, you're, uh, you're about 100 miles away from us at the moment.
1: Yes, I am. I'm in San Jose at the moment where it's actually quite chilly. And I'm looking at Harry and Asher listeners who are having to share one uh, set of headphones with a mic in the headphone cable plugged into Skype because we've got the rest of the kit on order, which means that Harry is having to like, lean in really uncomfortably close to Asher. How how do you guys feel there? Do you feel like you're bonding?
2: Oh, it's pretty romantic. Yeah, I was about to say,
0: you say it's uncomfortable. You know, we're here. Yeah, we get
2: along pretty well.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Harry, you've bought a paramotor, paraglider
0: motor, motorized paraglider. Yeah. How do you say it? It slightly depends who you're talking to, actually. I think you can either call it a paramotor or you can call it a powered paraglider, but yeah, I bought one which I'm now waiting for a good day when I can... I, I took it out and sort of taxied around on the beach. It was quite windy, so I, I just did lots of practice launches without ever actually starting the engine. And uh, I'm just waiting for a nice, calm wind day when I can uh, try and take it off the ground.
2: Harry, I feel like you're about 20 years ahead of your time. That's a, that's a very mid-50s to 60s hobby. Ooh, I thought that's a little unfair. But no, I mean, it's enough. a pretty good one. <laughs> I just think it takes you about 50 years to appreciate how nice it is to uh, sail around the beach. Well, fly around the beach.
1: Yeah. So this morning, I was watching over my breakfast, Paramotor Crash Compilation 2014 on YouTube. Ah, uh,
0: yeah. And
1: you, you're right, Asher, it does tend to be mostly uh, sort of the older gentleman that is paramotoring and crashing. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, like, it, it seems like there's two kinds of crashing. Yeah. There's the ones where the guys basically don't get off the ground and just fall over in a very undignified and what looks like quite a painful ankle twisting type way. Yeah. But then the really scary ones, which seem to happen quite a lot, is when they sort of swing forward. So, it, like you're, you're hanging underneath this parachute with, with the fan behind you, and then they sort of swing forward like they're on a swing, but then they swing forward to a certain point at which the, the
0: parachute sort of stop,
1: is, stops being filled up with air, yeah. and they just drop out of the sky like a stone.
0: Yeah, so that happens when. So, you, you've got two controls. You've got number one is you've got the throttle that controls the engine. And then you've also got two brake handles that are attached to the wing to slow the wing down. And if you pull down on the brakes to slow the wing, but at the same time press quite hard on the throttle, then that's, that ends up happening.
1: Um, that's, so it seems like just a, sort of a moment of slight dyslexia in terms
0: of what to pull and squeeze could kill you. I think kill is quite high, but potentially hurt. Well, it depends how high you are, I guess. Yeah. From the little bit of, of the flying that I've done, like, a lot of those guys, right, uh, have quite big, powerful motors. Mine's tiny. Mine's only 100cc. Whereas uh, a lot of the, the the engines that are out there are, s- are sort of double that power. Like, you really do have to throttle up quite hard for quite a long time with the brakes pulled quite hard to do that. Okay, well, listeners, uh, this was possibly the last time you'll ever hear Harry record a podcast. <laughs> and uh, if he's not on next episode, you'll know why. No, I, th- I think it... From what I've seen, from the, it, it, it's, it's kind of hard because you're right. If you go onto YouTube, what you find is lots and lots of crashes. But I think it's because if you just go up and fly around, it's pretty boring to watch.
2: Yeah, I was about to say, it's probably not too and, interesting to put so up a YouTube video of you successfully flying your... Successfully flying paramotor. around
0: and sort of enjoying the scenery. So I, from everything I've read from the sort of national governing bodies and the the, the training books and things... It, it's pretty safe like the, the the if you let go of everything it will just default into flying itself so as soon as you feel it going wrong like the default is just let go and let it do its thing and it should just return back to a normal trimmed flight so what i really
1: want to see is do you remember a couple of weeks ago you, you managed to get the drone to fly along with a
0: formation of pelicans yes are you going to be able to do that with the paramotor as well uh, if they'll let me get close. Well, actually, possibly not, because I don't think I can fly fast enough. I've got a top speed of about 20 miles an hour on that thing, and the the Pelicans were doing 35, 40 miles an hour, something ridiculous like that. So wh- where are you going to take off from? Because it
1: seemed like taking off near anything tall, like a building or a tree or a wall or even a dustbin, <laughs> could be <laughs> um, potentially problematic, according to the um, YouTube videos I've seen. The, uh, the, the beach at low tide is perfect. Uh-huh. Okay. I guess, do you want it offshore or onshore? Because offshore, you, we could lose you out to sea, and onshore, you could end up uh,
0: like hanging from a tree in a sort of comedy 1950s World War Two <laughs> parachuter style. No, you, you don't want the... The offshore wind is no good because it's very gusty. You know, it goes strong, weak, strong, weak, strong, weak. So an onshore wind is perfect because a, a sea breeze is a very steady, fixed wind speed. So that's perfect, but you don't want it too strong. So when I went down the other day, it was onshore, but it was... Probably like 15, 15, 20 miles an hour of wind. So that's, it would have been very bumpy if I'd taken off. So I was just, I just spent an hour just bringing the wing up from lying in a crumpled heap on the floor to bringing it up over my head and just maneuvering around on the beach and then dropping it back again and then doing that again and again and again and again until I felt really comfortable with it. But the ideal is just like, you know, sort of standard onshore. You know, five six miles an hour of onshore wind like that's perfect. I'm so I'm just so scared. I know we were talking about it on the show before, but I'm I'm just so scared that you're
1: going to really hurt yourself. Mind you, you can do a lot of video coaching and a lot of the training that you're doing from a
0: wheelchair, I guess. So guess uh, it'll be fine. A full body cast. I think I can still sit on the beach with a video camera. It should be yeah, fine.
2: Perfect.
0: <laughs> so I, I, this week I uh, reread
1: a book that I really liked called The Etymologicon mm-hmm. by a guy called Mark Forsyth, and it's uh, for those of you who don't know it. Et- Etymology is the history of where words come from. But he's written this book in a really funny kind of, uh, did you know, interesting thing kind of way. Um, And it it prompted me to do a little bit of surf etymology. So do you guys want a fun surf etymology fact?
2: I feel like it's coming either way.
1: (laughs) 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 Okay, so the word stoked, right, um, obviously comes from the word to like stoke a fire, Mm i.e. you're stoked because your internal fire of joy presumably is being sort of stoked, and, and the flames are, are getting higher and all that. Yeah. And uh, the reason why we say you stoke a fire is because it comes from the Greek word uh, "stokasticos," or I don't know if it's like a Spanish pronunciation, pronunciation. it's stochasticos, anyway. And that means to aim, right, or hence to like poke a fire. So that's the etymology of the word stoked, which I thought was kind of interesting. Oh. But more than that, there's a scientific word, which is stochastic. Mm-hmm. And that has the same root. And stochastic means when you can't predict the outcome of any one instance of something, but you can predict the aggregate of, say, the average of like a thousand instances, which I think is something that we find as surf coaches is really, really important to bear in mind. Because you see all the time in surfing, people going out and having a bad session or a good session, uh, even though there are... Uh, sort of trying something for example that might be a really good technique or they might be on exactly the right board they might just not get the right wave and then they might come in putting far too much uh, emphasis on their experience of that one attempt at using that type of equipment or trying that particular technique and what they need to do is take a more stochastic to use the word in context uh, view of their own surfing i.e to step back and look at the aggregate over 30 40 50 surfs instead of just that one experience that they had Mm -hmm. and it's sort of a common mental error I think that we all make all the time as surfers and that's why as coaches we're always telling people you know to focus on the the process rather than the result of any one given surf and so those two words come from the same base or yeah so so the word stochastic also comes from the same greek word uh meaning to to aim or to poke, except that in the context of the scientific use of the word, it meant aim, and literally it meant to aim an arrow, and that, that meant to aim an arrow as in to get an approximation, so to sort of predict something, to be able to say that approximately this is going to be right. Okay. So it was sort of used figuratively in the context of uh, stochastic and its modern science usage. Um, and it was used literally in the, in, to, in the context of stoked and its surf usage. Cool. And I just thought, you know, to, to remain stoked, you need to remain stochastic. And I thought that was a good little etymology
0: Very fact. Very good.
2: You guys like, like that. Now, Rue, when you were uh, rereading this book, did you listen to the audio book or actually like a paperback? Because you're, you're quite an audio guy. <laughs> I, I can't really imagine you sitting down in an armchair and like getting, getting into a good book by a fire. No,
1: yeah, you've, you've got me. I did. I listened to the audio version. Yeah.
2: I just I feel like uncomfortable
1: saying I listened to this book recently so I just say that I read it yeah. but maybe I
0: should maybe I should just you know nail my colors to the mast and say I listened to it yeah. <laughs> um, and you're feeling better the last time we recorded you were holed up in your bedroom unable to walk
1: Oh, yeah, sorry about missing the episode. It was really nice listening to you guys in the podcast, though. Although I kind of, in my dreary state, I was listening to you guys and, and the show, and I sort of was wanting to, like, chip in with comments, but was unable to. <laughs> yeah,
2: classic <laughs> reaction. How have, uh, how's
1: your
0: couple of weeks been, Ash?
2: Um, I've really been enjoying the, uh, the change of seasons in Costa Rica. So after such a big El Nino northern hemisphere season, uh, kind of the northern... Pacific has slowed down a little bit, and uh, we have a lot of south swells to look for. So down in the roaring 40s, there's a bunch of energy going on, and I'm, uh, I'm excited for the upcoming swells.
0: Rolling on into the news then, and a uh, couple of things that, that caught my eye. Actually, firstly, just a couple of uh, things that are way, way off in the distance, but uh, you might want to make some notes in your diary. The, uh, the first was I saw an announcement that the Surf Expo event that normally takes place every year in Florida uh, in September, they're going to team up with the Surf Park Summit uh, which I think this is the second one. I went to the first one a couple of years ago in California, but they're going to do the second one in Florida. And they're now going to combine those two events into into one on in, uh, in the 7th of September. So that could be a really uh, interesting event. So, Harry, yeah, you went to the first Surf Park Summit, didn't you? Yeah. W- what was your experience like there? It was interesting. It was a big mix of people who were bright-eyed investors that had this idea of surf parks taking over the world and a bunch of people like me who... We're looking at these bright-eyed investors and going, please build one, please, please build one. <laughs> and then a few people who were involved in the industry trying to get bright-eyed investors to come and invest in their, their technology rather than anybody else's. But there, there were a couple of pretty interesting talks. That, so, the interesting thing for me was that some of the bigger names actually didn't
2: show for that event and, and didn't talk. Well, presumably the, uh, the biggest player in the uh, surf park game wasn't even around then. Uh, the Kelly Slater Wave Company.
0: Well, no, I mean, they, the, the Kelly Slater's Wave Company has been around for about 10 years. Yeah, but, but if they,
2: anything, they were kind of in the shadows at the time.
0: Yeah, and, and they didn't show up. Wave Garden didn't show up, uh, even though they were in the process of, you know, Surf Snowdonia and the Wave in Bristol were both at that point talking about using Wave Garden tech. They weren't at the event.
2: So now that kind of the Wave Park dream is a reality, I bet this next summit's going to be pretty interesting. Yeah, I hope so. I mean, there's a lot, there's a lot of technology at the table now.
1: I really hope that the guys that are behind the the Kelly Slater wave pool actually go along and really engage with the the, the summit and with the uh, the community. I've got a feeling, just a sneaking suspicion, that they might not go and keep everything very like under wraps because the whole thing's been quite cloak and dagger up to this point, and and they might just yeah. continue in that in that vein. Because I, I can imagine that they don't want to share the technology they don't really feel necessarily like they've got much to learn from everyone else because there's you know, is obviously a superior wave, a superior product. Um, yep. you know, And that, that would just be in keeping with their company ethos so far. But I hope they don't do that. Yeah,
0: yeah I agree. It would certainly be nice to know a little bit more that's going on. The, the other one that I noticed is a boardroom show, which is in California. The boardroom show is in May, and they've got some really cool speakers lined up. And that is going to be on the... 14th and 15th of May, so if you're anywhere near Southern California, then I would uh, definitely recommend checking that show out. Uh, anything caught you guys' eye in the news? Yeah, I
1: was going through the WSL homepage, and I, I, I noticed that Daniel Thompson has just done an interview with them where they really played up the whole fee thing. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you guys have seen the video.
2: Yeah, my first reaction to the video was it was a, uh, it was a little bit overdramatic in production value. <laughs> It looked like a like a like a Hollywood trailer. I thought the majority of it wasn't too
0: dramatic, but the opening thirty seconds was ridiculous. <laughs> it Was a little over the top.
1: Yeah, it sort of reminded me of those old TV shows presented by uh, Leonard Nimoy, where he's talking about aliens and the ancient Egyptians and stuff like that. You know?
2: Yeah, exactly.
1: So, so it's kind of interesting. Um, you know, as regular listeners will know, we've been following uh, Tomo's designs uh, with great interest and. Uh, Harry's got an Evo, which uh, everyone at Surf Simply has been frothing over. I've got an Evo, and actually I've got another Evo and a Vader on the way next week, which I'm pretty excited to get. So all in all, we're we're, we're big uh, fans of Tomo. But I wanted to take a little like look at the, at the whole fee-golden ratio aspect, because he brings it up in almost every interview that he does, and particularly in the new one on the WSL homepage that's up there right now he talks how he, he talks about how he uses phi in the golden ratio in all his designs but you know i was interested in does he really have this magic formula or you know and, and kind of what's going on there so i thought i'd give for our listeners a quick breakdown of exactly what he's talking about what phi is mm-hmm. right so Uh, Phi is an irrational number that goes on forever. Uh, It's a bit like pi, but while pi is the ratio of a circle's uh, circumference to its diameter, phi is the ratio of the sides of a specific type of rectangle called a golden rectangle. Uh, A golden rectangle looks slightly wider than like a widescreen TV. Uh, Its unique geometric property is if if you cut a square off one end of it, then the remaining rectangle is exactly the same shape as the original one. Right. You, do you guys get what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah. However many squares you cut off it, the rectangle, it, it always has the, the long side is the short, time, short side times phi. So phi is about one, it's just over one and a half. It's, it's 1.618 and it's an infinite number like pi so it goes on forever. You could calculate it precisely for any uh, maths geeks out there who want to by doing one plus the square root of five divided by two. Mathematically, phi is kind of interesting because it's the size of the gap between numbers in the Fibonacci series, Mm -hmm. which is something that Daniel Thompson brings up quite a lot in interviews as well. The Fibonacci series is when you start with number one, but then each subsequent number is the preceding two numbers added together. So Mm -hmm. one, one, two, and then three is one plus two. Then the next number is five because that's three plus two. Then the next number is 8 because that's 5 plus 3. The next number is 13 because that's 5 plus 8. You guys get the idea? Yeah. Mm -hmm. So the Fibonacci series goes on for infinity, obviously. And as you get closer and closer to infinity, the ratio of any one number to the preceding number gets closer and closer to phi. But obviously, it goes to infinity, so it never quite gets that. There's, th- this is where it gets really interesting. There's lots of examples of phi in nature. But my favorite example is that it's the most efficient way that plants have evolved to capture the maximum amount of sunlight um, when they're growing leaves. And they're trying to figure out how many leaves to grow around any given stalk. So if you can imagine you're the sun you know, pointing down on a, on a, on a plant... If the plant Mm -hmm. grows, say, a leaf every quarter turn, then every fourth leaf will be in the shadow of the leaf directly above it. So the only way you can get, and that's Mm -hmm. always going to be a problem no matter how you split it up, the only way you can get round it is to grow exactly three leaves per turn, which means they're 137 degrees apart. So there's 1.618 leaves per turn, and then you can go on forever and ever, and no leaf will ever be shadowing the leaf underneath it. Yeah which I just think is really cool. Also, when you look at the spirals in the seed pattern in the center of a sunflower, you'll notice mm-hmm. that you have exactly the same thing for exactly the same reason. And the, and the effect that you get when you look at the seeds in the center of a sunflower is these two spirals going in opposite directions that go on forever that are overlaid over the top of each other. If you Google it, it's really cool. It's really, really beautiful. Another of my favorite examples of phi from an engineering point of view is that if you want to cancel out standing audio waves in a room, so you get really good acoustics you know, for music or TV, then you should build your room so that the height of the room is phi times the width, and the length of the room is phi times the height, and then you'll get no audio waves repeating on themselves, mm-hmm. which is just kind of amazing, right? So, if, And if you think that's kind of weird and cool and interesting like I do, then you should know that it's not actually mm-hmm. that unusual in the world of maths because the world of maths is just full of incredible cool stuff and if you're in any way interested in it there's an author called uh, richard elwes and he'll turn maths from a like a dry tedious subject into a fascinating world of exciting ideas he's written a bunch of books we should put a link to that in the show notes for you anyway because of these cool properties the number phi has developed a lot of mythology around it some people call it the divine proportion many people claim it's the most aesthetically pleasing proportion And there are people who use it in art and architecture and music and even in stock market systems and formulas and gambling formulas. Mm -hmm. Some of them have some legitimacy to them. But how do you tell the difference between the science and the pseudoscience? Well, you'll find lots of objects around your home which are tantalizingly close to fee in terms of the ratio between the length and the width. So there might be like windows, books, tables, etc. But that's because objects have to be not too wide and not too tall or not too long and thin just in order to be practical but that doesn't mean that there's anything particularly magical about phi and the golden ratio when they're used just to make a book or a window or a TV another good example of phi pseudoscience is the parthenon mm-hmm. which uh, you know in greece which a lot of people think is designed around phi uh, it actually isn't if you look at photos of the parthenon with go- golden rectangles superimposed mm-hmm. over the top of them you'll see that they never really quite fit and also the Parthenon was uh, designed a century before Euclid discovered phi. And there's no evidence that the people who made the Parthenon mm-hmm. knew, uh, knew anything about phi at all. So when we look at Tomo's boards, and I just have mm-hmm. to say this again, I love surfing his boards. I've, uh, since I got my Evo, that's, that's all I've been surfing. And there definitely is a lot of fascinating stuff going on there. Um, but is there something special about his use of phi in the golden ratio? Or is it just that, you know, boards need to be not too wide and not too tall and channels need to be not too wide and not too narrow, just like, uh, you know, the Parthenon or uh, the uh, paperback book or the smartphone that you're probably listening to this on? Um, Or is there something special, something unique about the 1.618 ratio? So the best way to ask yourself is to say, well, would this thing work if they were using the ratio of 1.6 or 1.7? instead of 1.618 etc etc you get you get what i mean mm-hmm. uh, so like most things it comes down to the details right now the only specific example of tomo's use of phi that i've heard him say is that the width of the central channel on the bottom of the surfboard is phi times the width between the channel and the edges of the board uh, and and this is actually in the video that's on the ws homepage right now about halfway through he just points that out very quickly and then the video moves on uh, I don't know what type of tests he's done to see if the channels work just as well if use 1.6 or 1.7 as a ratio. Um, and I don't know what mechanism he is proposing to cause that specific ratio to work uniquely well in the context of the flow of water under the bottom of a board. But I'd really love to ask him. So let's try
0: and get him on the show. I did actually email him uh, the other day, and he uh, sounded interesting, but uh, about... Th- about three or four days after I emailed him and got a reply back saying, oh, yeah, you know, tell me more about it. Uh, Stu Kennedy started storming through the Snapper Rocks contest, and I suspect he now has 200 million emails in his inbox, and it's going to take him a little while to get around to dealing with us.
2: Yeah, I got a feeling that Tomo is one of the most in-demand people in surfing right now.
0: Yeah. It seems when you
1: see all of the interviews and all of the video pieces about him, he, he keeps bringing up this subject, but... There, we never actually get any details about specifically, you know, why he, where he's using it and why he's using it. Yeah, and uh, and I wonder if that's because, I mean, what what I assume is that he obviously is very enthusiastic to talk about it, but the the people who are editing the interviews or videos kind of feel like their readership or listenership. Um, are not going to be like, interested in the technical detail. And so they gloss over it and then they put in the dramatic music and picture of weather patterns like in the WSL video. Yeah. Uh, so anyway, hopefully we can get him on here because as we've discovered, our listeners do not
0: mind geeking out and stuff. Do not mind, mind geeking listeners. out. <laughs> Interestingly, one of the other things that Daniel Thompson talks about a lot is some of the sort of hydrodynamic studies that have been done. And in particular, one of the, one of the really interesting things was when they were looking at aspect ratios in terms of planing hulls and trying to make the most efficient planing hull possible, particularly for uh, smooth water. If you you were going over a real perfect smooth surface, like, uh, I mean, I guess a wave almost creates a a fairly smooth surface. But they found that uh, an aspect ratio of 0.6, which if you reverse it is about 1.6, or, you know, it's, it's pretty close to phi, was about the most efficient ratio of length to width of a planing hull. So, yeah, one, one has to sort of think, OK, I can get the idea that someone would
1: say phi is an interesting number. Let's try using it in surfboard design. Wow, that works really well. And I guess the next step, if one's going to be sort of scientifically rigorous and, and, and robust, is to then, you know, try and disprove the hypothesis rather than trying to prove it. Yeah. I mean, just generally speaking with my knowledge of, of how surf, the surf industry works, I doubt anyone's done that yet. But it would be fascinating. It would be. It would be indeed. Um, anything else caught you guys eye in the news so i think we spoke about this a few episodes ago but uh, exeter university have teamed up with surfers against sewage in the uk and they're trying to recruit surfers so that they can compare they take swabs i won't tell you where from you can look that up on the website but they want to compare the uh the gut back the microbial gut bacteria in non-surfers to surfers because there's a lot of uh, antibiotic resistant bacteria in the sea and they estimate that surfers who surf three times a month ingest about three times as much seawater as non-surfers and they want to know what the effects are of that on human health given that antibiotic resistant bacteria is, is, uh, and, and how they're evolving is one of the biggest health dangers to humanity according to the WHO any UK surfers that uh, want to jump in on that uh, I think that would be a fantastic thing to do uh, if you want to, we'll put a link in the show notes. You just email david at sas.org.uk. And then you can get your bum wiped for free. Mm. It is your bum. That is where they take the swabs Oh, <laughs> Although, Rod, I think they let you take your own swabs
0: and then send it to <laughs> them. How generous. <laughs> the big news for, for this episode then is we had a, some great competition uh, going on at Bells Beach in Southern Australia. The men's and the women's both competed. And uh, I guess the real big story is Matt Wilkinson. Uh, has, won his, has come from having never won a WCT event to
2: winning two in a row.
0: Yeah, when it rains, it pours, man. He has been on this year. I
1: don't think I've ever been so happy to see someone win a surf contest.
2: Yeah, Matt Wilkinson is amazing. Did you see the, uh, the snap of his, uh, his bar tab after he won the event?
1: <laughs> so he's still, he's still a bit rock and roll. He hasn't lost his rock and roll. Yeah, he hasn't, he hasn't lost his edge, which I love. There was a great quote from him after the contest. Because, of course, you know, Glenn Micro Hall was uh, his coach. And, uh, you know, they were interviewing up in the box and they were saying to him, you know, what what, what have you been doing differently? And he goes, well, every time I have the opportunity to make a mistake, I try not to do it. (laughs) 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 I just thought the simplicity of that is awesome.
2: Yeah. Did you see the WSL headline after the event that said, Matt Wilkinson has no idea what's going on? That's a bit harsh. I was like, yeah, I was like, that's a bit... They're really painting a bit of a uh, confused picture about him. You know, I, I think Matt Wilkinson's reputation
1: is just a bit of a happy-go-lucky, uh, you know, joker who do- who's a bit confused and doesn't know what's going on. I think it grossly underestimates the guy's intelligence. Yeah. I mean, if you watch the way that he just conducts himself uh, in interviews and, you know, little uh, uh, video parts that have been done about him, he's, he's quite self-deprecating. Yeah. But always in the context of making the people around him feel good. Yes. You know, and I'm sure that we all know people like that in our lives. And at first glance, it's easy to think, oh, OK, they don't quite know what's going on or they're a bit of a joker. And then you actually realize, no, that these this, this guy, this person is is quite perceptive as to the people around him yeah. and basically just wants them to feel good. Yeah, and I mean, I think that's a that's a really nice quality. It's certainly not true of everyone on tour. Yeah.
2: yeah. Well, overall, in the event, um, as someone who criticizes bells quite harshly, I, uh, I I really enjoyed the event overall. Well, it's great to see it take place in in big,
0: you know, big, meaty swell. Because I think when bells when bells doesn't perform, it is when there's no, you know, the swell's just very intermittent, very wobbly, and it's not really lining up on the reef.
2: But I mean, it was what.
0: 10-15 foot faces rolling through in some of those heats.
2: Yeah that's that's sort of what I enjoyed watching about it that it, it was big but it wasn't a very good big wave it's not like a, a big wave that you would want to travel around the world for. It was sort of like let's say our local beach Guiones when it gets 15 feet on the face of Guiones it's a big mushy wave a lot like, like Bells so I think the surfing there was really really relatable to a lot of surfers
1: That's actually one thing that I really love about the Bells contest is that You know, there's not a lot of barrels. I mean, Mason Ho got that really good one, but on the whole, there's not a lot of barrels and there's not a lot of airs unless it's a bit smaller. Um, So mostly you're seeing guys doing big wrapping cutbacks. Uh, Obviously, you're seeing some incredible turns off the top uh, and you're seeing some huge, big floaters, probably some of the biggest, longest floaters you're going to see in any of the World Tour contests. And, you know, that's what a lot of everyday surfers are working on, not with the kind of, speed and power and timing in the same size waves, but it's essentially the same maneuvers to scale down. And I think that makes it really, really interesting to watch and a lot more relatable than when you're watching them, you know, do rodeo clowns at trestles or pulling into 10-foot chopu.
2: Yeah, I do have a, a bit of a bone to pick with the WSL, though. Um, I wish they would spend a little bit more time talking about surfers' equipment. Uh, do you remember a couple of years ago It was when it was the ASP and before Ever heat, they kind of had a breakdown of the surfers' boards? Mm-hmm. It seems they don't really do that anymore, which is a shame because at Bells, I was really interested to know what they were on. Because it, it wasn't waves that you need a, a big gun for, but it's also not waves that you're going to your normal shortboard. So I really would have liked to see kind of what design-wise a lot of those guys were going with.
0: Yeah, I saw, I saw Matt Wilkinson's board, and he was riding a, board, he was riding, um, a, a fairly standard shortboard, but then stretched out. And so he was riding uh, a six one rather than his normal sort of 5.10, 5.11. Mm-hmm. I thought it was interesting in the tour notes that Mason Ho said, if this was
1: back in Hawaii, everyone would be riding 6.8s. Oh, that was um, Keanu, Keanu Singh. Singh. Oh, yeah, that's right, yeah. Uh, you know, which I just think is kind of interesting. I think in Hawaii generally, people are a lot more willing to jump on bigger boards than perhaps they are elsewhere in the world. I think that's just kind of a cultural thing. But, um, yeah, there was one bit where I think – Pete Mal pulled Geordie Smith's board aside and he said that it was a 34 litre board. Yeah. And he said that Geordie Smith is about 200 pounds, mm-hmm. which means that, you know, because I'm really interested in, in not just the literage of the board, but how that, what that is as a, as a, as a ratio, you know, compared to the size of the surfer. Mm-hmm. Uh, cause obviously a 34 litre board for Keanu Singh and for Geordie Smith is two completely different sizes. So, um, cause Keanu Asingh so small. So, A 34-litre board for Geordie Smith, if he's £200, is £5.8 per litre, which seems to be what a lot of the guys are uh, riding. And actually, just when I say that... I'll just quickly address an email because we've had a a couple of comments about this on Twitter and I've had a couple of emails through. Mm -hmm. We talk uh, sometimes on the show about pounds per liter and about this scale where 6.6 is the smallest board that a surfer can ride and 3.5 more or less is about the biggest board a surfer can duck dive. So you have this scale that everyone is on and it's interesting to see where other surfers are on it and where you are on it in Mm -hmm. terms of the size shortboard you're riding. And people have written in, really, really upset that we're <laughs> mixing metric and imperial yes, and uh, demanding that we stick with one or the other. The reason that I worked it out like that and that we're sort of stuck with that little system is simply because liters is the most common measurement that people measure boards in and pounds is the most common measurement that Americans measure weight in. Mm-hmm. Uh, so
0: it's, it's, we're just simply taking the two most ubiquitous measurements and, and, and putting them together. Yeah. Well, and the the interesting thing there is that, that obviously the all the other dimensions that we tend to use on a surfboard are imperial as well. We use the we use feet and inches to measure the board, but then go to liters for the volume. And the reason for that is that the process of measuring volume in the boards has come from windsurfing, which is much more European uh, in in origin.
2: Huh.
1: Yeah. So the, uh, surfing is a right old cultural mishmash of uh, metric and imperial, and we're going to carry on mishmashing it together as long as it is uh, easiest to do so,
2: so. just t- back to talking about Geordie's board how does that pounds per liter compare to what his short board would be on or what a normal shortboard would be
1: okay so just to give you a rough scale um so his, his that was a big board for Geordie. that was and he, that was 5.8 pounds per liter so that remember the higher the number the smaller the surfboard is you know in relation to the surfer so Kelly Slater's, who who you know rides probably the smallest boards out of anyone on tour, when he's riding in head high waves on a, on a really small board, that'll be about six point six. So Geordie, a, a lot of the guys are riding like near a six point two or six. Geordie was riding a five point eight just there. My personal shortboard that I ride is is about five point seven, and I think you guys, I think Harry, you ride it around five point six, five point seven as well. Um, Asher, I think you ride slightly smaller you're closer to 6 pounds per liter Mm -hmm. Um, so I mean that just gives you kind of an idea of the scale I don't know what the ratio is for Geordie's normal everyday shortboard that he would ride in smaller surf but I did think watching Bells that the guys that were on bigger boards
2: were once again looking better looked way better talk about looking good on a big board Mason Ho looked incredible out there
1: and it wasn't just the guys actually Uh, watching the semi-final between Carissa Moore Was it the semi? Yeah, the semi-final between Carissa Carissa Moore and Sally Sally Fitzgibbons. Like those, both of them were surfing amazing. In the past, I've been a little critical of some of Sally's surfing, saying that it's a little bit too textbook and it doesn't have that sort of je ne sais quoi that gives you goosebumps and makes you go, oh, that was cool. Uh,
0: I think she's kind of got that now. Going for the big turn, she looked a little less uh, sort of straight-legged. And I I always used to think when she was going for big power surfing, she looked a little bit Bambi-esque as she went for the turns and and there was none of that this time around it looked it looked much more fluid and controlled
1: and there was that one moment where this is entirely non-functional but there was that one moment where she did a couple of big maneuvers and then the wave just flattened out and she stood up for a second sort of did a little mini soul arch like a little craig anderson style for a second and then crouched back down again and started carrying taking the wave apart yeah and I just thought, oh, she's got a little bit. She's got a little bit rock and roll. There's
0: a little bit of punk in there. Yeah. And I quite like that. It makes me like her a lot more. Very cool. Um, and again, for this event, another um, in the men's event at least, another not very good showing for the, the high seeds.
2: Yeah, Kelly Slater has won one heat
1: all year. That was amazing. Joel, Kelly, John John, and Medina all went down in round three, just four heats in a row. Bang, 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 bang.
2: Yeah, it's crazy.
1: You often see in contests that when the conditions are poor, you tend to have more random results. And when the conditions are all time, we tend to see the highest seeded surfers going on through. Yeah. Which kind of you know makes sense if we go back to our little bit of stochastic etymology that I forced
0: upon you guys earlier in the show. <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. um, but yeah so it's, it's interesting so right now we've got uh, we've got Connor Coffin who's a, a rookie is second on the world tour Geordie um, Smith coming off an injury is in third along with Colohi and Dino who none of whom are, are guys that you would expect to see in the top five I thought Connor Coffin's post-heat interviews have been really good as well as well as, well as
1: his surfing. Yeah. I mean, he, he seems very relaxed in front of the camera. He seems like a very intelligent, articulate guy. Uh, you know, I, I think he's, he's going to do well in terms of media as well as contest surfing, which, you know, they have to these days.
2: Yeah. Uh, I think Connor Coffin's the kind of surfer, too, that's going to really thrive on the world tour, yeah. especially now that they seem to be a little bit more power-based in the judging. Um, whereas compared to a season on the QS it's going to be a lot harder for him to kind of separate himself from the pack. So it's really good to see him mixing it up with kind of the best guys in the world. Another interesting statistic I noticed was uh, Mason Ho is ranked higher than Kelly Slater at the moment. It's like we're living in an alternative universe, you know, with an alternative WSL. Yeah, Wilco world champ, Kelly Slater fighting for his position. I wish the WSL would just give Mason a year-long... Wild card. <laughs> I'm really surprised that they haven't given Mick
1: a wild card for next year. I mean, it seems shocking that someone can win three world titles and not just say, "Like, I'm going to take a year off, but maybe I'll come back next
0: year."
2: No, I think the exact thing is true. I think uh, WSL has a rule that if you are a former world champion, you're allowed to take a year now off. You
0: mentioned that last time, and I couldn't find any. I couldn't find it anywhere.
2: Yeah, because uh, Andy Irons did it. And I know it was, and so did Kelly Slater. There was a lot of talk from the commentary team in the Bells event about
0: how Mick was needing to requalify if he wanted to yeah. do next year. Huh. And I, I think as well, I think Kelly and Andy both did it through, uh, they got the injury wildcard that year.
2: Yeah. They oh. came
0: in and applied for the wildcard and, and, and cited personal reasons for taking the sabbatical oh. and then went for the injury wildcard. And obviously being high-profile surfers, they gave them the injury wild card. But
2: yeah, I'm fairly certain though that as a former world champ, if you want one of those injury wild cards, then you can have it. Well, but then why is Sonny not on tour? Well, because I don't know. Did Sonny really take one year off, or was it more than that? Well, Sonny took. Sonny was on the tour, and
0: then went to jail, and is now having to requalify through the. Went to jail for tax avoidance, and is now having to requalify through the uh, QS. Does the WSL have a
1: little subclause that says that if you go to jail during your year-off, you have to re-qualify for the QS? Yeah.
2: We'll <laughs> see, but or, or I'm, c- willing to, uh, I'm willing to bet a, uh, a Pilsen that <laughs> if Mick Fanning wants to and doesn't make the cutoff, that WSL will give him a wild card. It wouldn't
0: surprise me, but it's certainly not in the rules that he gets an instant thing.
2: I'm going to look that up because Mick was quoted saying that I'm trying to qualify so I don't take an injury wildcard.
1: Do you know, this is, this is one of the reasons that I love the World Tour. And I, I, just to go off subject for a moment, um, you know, whether the, the conditions are good or bad and, and whether the criteria are spot on or not and whether the World Tour really, the champion is the best surfer in the world and all of those kinds of things, it's not really about the answer to any of those questions. It's about giving us as a surf community this thing that we can talk about. You know that we there's kind of this shared experience. You know, rather than us all having our own isolated sessions in our own isolated corners of the world, we all get to watch these sessions go down and talk about them. And I think it's, uh, I think it's really cool. Speaking of which, what was your guys' favourite
0: heats of the contest? Were there any that stood out for you? Uh, Matt Wilkinson, where he got that last that last minute uh, wave that that took him through. Was it the quarterfinal
1: heat? That was awesome. I can't I can't remember exactly which round it was. I think it was the quarterfinals.
2: I think he did it twice. I think he did it to uh, Julian Wilson, and then he did it again to Wiggly. Yeah, he
1: provided some great drama. Yeah. And I actually, I thought that Mick was going to get the 9.4 that he needed against Geordie in his uh, semifinal as well. Yeah. Because he surfed amazing through the whole event.
2: I think my favorite heat of the contest was Mason Ho, D'Souza in round three, because it was a really interesting contrast to styles. It was D'Souza using a really kind of textbook textbook bottom to top style surfing and then mason ho is drawing all kinds of funny lines it was like kind of hanging at the bottom soul arching for a second and then maybe taking a little bit longer at the top and putting the lines where he wanted to then i i thought it looked really really good on the bells ball yeah M- mason ho is one of
1: those guys that when i see his name i uh, i try and rearrange my day so i can make sure i don't miss his heat yeah i, I thought that round four was when it, things got really interesting that's when the conditions got kind of groomed and offshore and then, you know, later on in the contest, it got big and unruly, which was really cool to watch as well. But I thought that, uh, you know, if you're going back, listeners, over the heat analyzer and you just want something to, to watch, uh, round four, heat two and heat three, I thought were really cool. Round two was, sorry, uh, heat two was Mason Ho, uh, Wilco and uh, Wiggly Dantis, And uh, Wiggly, I thought, was surfing looking like Oki. I thought he was amazing. He's one of those surfers we don't really talk about that much. and uh, mm-hmm. But, yeah, that was cool. And then the next heat was... Geordie, Mick Fanning, and Connor Coffin, and all three of them were just going absolutely berserk. Oh, it was yeah, beautiful! Such heat. such a good heat, really amazing.
2: I'm really happy that we only have uh, four more days until Margaret River kicks off. So, uh, on that subject, how did everyone's fantasy teams do? Oh, terrible! <laughs> <laughs> I've cracked the top
1: 100 within the Surf Sibley podcast group, so that's that's good for me. I'm 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 at 70. I finished at 84. Last year, so I'm, I'm ahead of the curve.
2: <laughs> yeah, for, uh, for being de- defending champion, I'm sitting somewhere in the 60s right now, I think.
0: I think I'm fifth at the moment. I'm doing surprisingly well. When you guys pick your teams, do you
1: just purely pick who you think is going to win or do you sort of pick who you'd like to cheer for as well?
0: I pick who I think is going to perform well. Not necessarily they're going to win, but whose style of surfing is going to suit the wave that they're going to. Which is really tricky with Margaret River because you've got the main break and then the box, which is a whole different ball game. Yeah, I've I've thrown
1: I've thrown Josh Kerr in my fancy. Yeah, yeah just well. for the uh, my, sort of my box guy. Box guy. Um,
2: Looks like the forecast is pretty solid as well. Yeah, but it's it's tricky because if you if you
0: build your team around surfing the box, I mean none of the none of the goofy foots are going to do that well out there. You know, a lot of the goofy foots had a lot of problems surfing out of the box last year. Oh,
2: if only Owen Wright was in the draw. Uh, he had a ten out there last yeah.
0: year. Yeah, he was the he was the exception to the rule where he did very well. But um, it, you know, that that slightly messes up the uh, the draw, and then they may only surf one round out there.
1: So when I pick my team, I always pick people that you know I quite like the personality and i really want to see them do well and i feel like this may be the flaw in my fancy surf team picking tactics <laughs> i think I, I yeah there's too much heart not enough head i need to go a little bit more like yeah.
0: the cold hard realities of, of the uh, cold hard realities well on the on the subject of the cold hard realities on the men's side of things uh, carlos you did the best at bells so congratulations and uh, sub i don't know who you are sub but you've now taken the overall lead in the team so that's Fantastic. Sub is a very specific
1: uh, internet abbreviation for a particular sexical, sexual, sexual pl- prolific.
0: <laughs> Never mind, just cut that Where are you going with uh, that one? And more importantly, how do you know that? <laughs> <laughs> um, on the women's side, uh, we actually had a draw. Three people: we had Dan, Justin, and Brent. Uh, all of you guys uh, drew for the lead, but Boogie Boarder for Life is still winning the uh, the women's league overall. So <laughs> that's such a good name, <laughs> Boogie Boarder for Life. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah if, if any of you guys do want to you know if you're not playing yet then then jump in because we're, we're as interested in who does well in each event as we are in who's winning the tour overall so um, I'll put the links in the show notes and and come and sign up it, it, it is a really fun way of of getting engaged in a, in the surf contest a
1: couple of other quick Wilco things I just had that I wanted to mention I like when he got chaired up the beach because it was a long old chair they carried him all the way up the steps and he banged his head on the sign and, you know, nearly all went
0: wrong. I was about to say, when they started chairing him, I figured that they would do it to the steps and he would run up. And then they started carrying him up the stairs. I thought, Ooh, that's brave. That's tough. Uh, <laughs> like, those, that's a long set of stairs, even at the, like, just walking. I like when he got to the top,
1: he was like, who's got the strongest fans? <laughs> <laughs> I thought that was pretty funny. Oh, two other things. The, the, com- the WSL commentary team. This, sorry, this is so pedantic. I almost dislike myself for bringing it up but the word unique means one, right? Something can't be quite unique or very unique. It's just unique or not unique. Just, just saying, just saying, sorry to be pedantic. (laughs) We can tell you've been reading a book about entomology. (laughs) Etymology. (laughs) Uh, What do you guys think about Barton Lynch doing a little bit of commentary?
2: Oh, he was so good. He's really well-spoken and had really good insight and, was ripping in the heritage seat heat.
1: Yeah. Him and Damien Hardman, it was cool watching those guys going at it. And yeah, Barton Lynch really was ripping. He was, he was a bit before my time in terms of his surfing prime. And I remember first seeing him actually watching the documentary Uh and, uh, uh, and just thinking that he came across on camera really well. And he's got, he's got a really cool Australian accent where he uh, sort of says all of his consonants very, very clearly, even though he's got quite a thick accent, like quite a thick Aussie twang. Mm And what I really like about it is that he always sounds really happy, like he's about to burst out laughing all the time he's talking. Have you noticed that? Yeah, he's really good. Yeah, he's kind of like, oh. And then we were out there and started to get a bit bigger, and I did a bit of a cutback. Yeah. And it's just I just I really like how he talks like that. It always makes me kind of grin at the TV. I, I like that the commentary team mentioned that they'd worked out that uh, in the quick pro, Wilco had got a thousand dollars per turn. I wonder how that's uh, stacking up. Now, I was going to, before the show, go through and count all of his waves from the last two contests using the
0: heat analyzer. Somebody, somebody does that already. There's there's a website that does that for each contest and works out who who the who are the most for the least amount of work. Oh, is it? What website is it? It is Surfergram. Is the website? Surfergram.com. Oh, you've just saved me a lot of uh, faffing around. Thanks. We'll put that in the show notes. I should have kept quiet
1: and just let you do it. <laughs> Let you waste half a day. Also, we were just talking about the box and how goofies tend not to do that well there. I don't know if you guys noticed, but Wilco actually in his interview after the Bells contest said that he feels like if the contest goes over to the box, that'll be one of his strengths. So, well, what he actually said was, if it goes over to the box, that'll be one of my strengths. So I'll get over there as soon as I can and practice going over the falls. <laughs> <laughs> this is the guy I want as world champ. I think he's just so, he's just so likeable.
2: yeah. Oh, I don't think I've ever pulled for anyone as hard as I've wanted, to, uh, wanted Wilco to win the world title.
1: Can he do three in a row? I'm just going to lay it out there. You guys think yes or no? And let's not say he's going to win it because that seems like a bit much. But, you know, we're talking finals. Can he get to the quarters, the semis, the finals? Can he keep up this like hot streak that he's on? Or is it going to be a flash in the
2: pan and then disappear
1: like Michelle Barrez
2: and many others? My heart says that he's going to make it three in a row. But my head is saying no
0: listening to the Surf Simply Podcast. Well, that's about all we've got time for this week, guys. So just very quickly before we go, the
2: what to watch. Uh, anything caught you guys' eye? Oh, I, loved, uh, I loved Corey Colapinto's Finstinct, the mm-hmm. little longboard film at San O. for you, yeah. God, he's amazing. I thought the Bell's tour notes was the best tour notes that
1: they've done. I mean, I guess they had some good material. It's a bit of a longer one. The, the edit's really nice. And actually, the bit, the bit where Wilco wins at the end kind of kind of gave me goosebumps a little bit. I thought they put the whole thing together
0: really well. It is, but have you noticed as well that Tour Notes used to be very specifically, it was part of the Hurley, it was following the Hurley team, and now it's STAB, yeah, stab are, it. are now funding the Tour Notes, and they have a little bit of a wider brief, and I think they have maybe a little bit more of a budget. Um, for post-production.
1: Yeah, that's probably true, and it, and it looks good. I really like it. I, I was wondering whether Corona are involved in sponsorship. <laughs> Did you notice the amount
0: of Corona bottles in it?
2: Yeah, I think Corona is just a beer sponsor of the tour now. Yeah, Corona are definitely quite
0: engaged with surfing in Australia, so it's possible. The other thing I noticed, the we, we mentioned this a while back when the trailers came out, but the Wave I Ride movie, which is a, a little documentary about Paige Alms, uh, who's a big wave surfer, a female big wave surfer from Hawaii uh, that movie is now out. You can stream it through all the usual sources and uh, it's won a ton of awards at various film festivals so it's mm-hmm. it's definitely if you've got uh, if you 've got a bit of time to sit on the TV and you want to hear about a young uh, a young lady charging some pretty enormous waves i uh, I recommend what sitting and watching that
1: Are you going to put a link to that in the show notes as well yes. I like, to, I like John John's one of my favourite surfers to watch, and Moderat is one of my favourite bands. So I was quite stoked that there was a John John video of him at Snapper with Moderat over the top. <laughs> Although, I, it, to be honest, it didn't quite work. Yeah, just, I, I don't know why. Something about electronica and people surfing, even though I love German electronica as I do, <laughs> uh, it yeah, just kind of didn't, didn't quite work. Didn't quite work.
0: Okay, ladies and gentlemen, well, that's all for this episode. I hope you enjoyed the show. I hope you'll be uh, tuning in to enjoy the Margaret River Contest. Uh, But from all of us here on the show, bye-bye.
2: Bye. Bye. See you later.
0: That was the Surf Simply podcast from the Surf Simply Coaching Resort in Costa Rica. For more about Surf Simply's video coaching courses for experienced surfers and technical coaching for entry-level surfers, go to surfsimply.com.